Welcome to The Workplace, a podcast by Cal Chamber. I'm Matthew Roberts, the Labor Law Helpline Manager and Employment Law Counsel with the California Chamber of Commerce. Hello, listeners. Well, it seems the last few days and weeks have brought quite a wet, windy, and wild start to 2023 for us here in California. Uh, up here in Sacramento, trees are down all over the place. Power comes and goes for many of us. And flooding has been so extensive in the state that it has made national news. Of course, as with many subjects that touch our own personal lives, this type of natural disaster and emergency has specific impacts on our workers and workplaces. And there are some compliance issues that employers should keep in mind for this and really any future disaster, whether it's another flooding event wildfire, earthquake, or, you know, another emergency condition. So to talk through these issues, we welcome back one of Cal Chambers labor law helpline experts, Ellen Savage. Good to see you again, Ellen. I hope you are staying dry and safe. I am. Thank you, Matt. I hope you are as well. Yeah, I think we're we're starting to get used to it now that it's persisted for so many weeks. It's, it's wild. I've never seen anything like it. But um, you know, we're faring okay here in Sacramento after a crazy weekend, but I know the rest of the state's still going through some things that we'll actually talk about here on this podcast, Ellen. So let's get started then. And of course, as you and I know, paying employees constantly creates issues on the helpline just generally, and emergency conditions are no strangers to wage and hour issues. So let's just start with the basics here with our non-exempt or hourly employees. When we have emergency conditions or disasters like the flooding and the power outages that we're seeing currently um, up and down the state, what issues should employers be mindful of under these circumstances? Well, as you said, they can raise all kinds of tricky wage and hour questions. So as you know, of course, in California, non-exempt slash hourly employees have to be paid for all the time they actually work. But in this kind of emergency situation, work doesn't always just mean the work they normally do. So work also includes any time that you might require an employee to wait for work. So during a strong storm system, maybe uh, let's say the power goes out and you might tell employees, hey, hang tight for a bit and let's wait for everything to come back on. And so we've got to pay these folks to wait. The U.S. Supreme Court weighed in on this in a really old court case before you and I were ever around, Matt. And they said, quote, you can hire a man to do nothing or do nothing but wait for something to happen. And that's pretty much what we sometimes are doing during these emergency situations. We tell an employee to wait out the power outage. And even though they're sitting in the break room, having a snack, checking Facebook, because you told them the wait, they're still on the clock, they're still getting paid. Um, also, your non-exempt sometimes have to be paid for time they don't work in these emergency situations. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Uh, California has reporting time pay when you send an employee home before they've worked at least half their shift, unless certain exceptions apply. And those might include some of the emergency conditions we're going through right now. Okay, Ellen. So there's a lot there to unpack, and I like you know us to kind of tether onto this idea that with our non-exempt, our hourly employees, they work, they get paid; they don't work, they don't get paid. And whether they are working is really that control issue you talked about. We can make somebody sit around and wait for work, but because we're making them do that, we have that control. And so with this reporting time pay situation, then this is one of those things you should describe. We have to provide payment when they don't work because the policy behind it is they have this expected shift. 
Um, we can't just yank the rug out from under them and send them home without their expected hours worked because they've made arrangements to be here at work. But there are exceptions, as you said, and certainly um, there seems to be some instances where the current situation we have now with torrential rains and incredible wind speeds um, is making work more difficult in some cases. So can you talk about when reporting time pay might apply and might be excused under these circumstances? Sure. So let's talk about two different situations. So like right now, it's raining like mad and your office roof starts leaking and there's puddles and drips everywhere. And you finally just throw in the towel, no pun intended. Now that I think about it, you close up shop, you tell your employees to go home. It's just wet. There's puddles everywhere. So they've worked less than half their scheduled shift. When you send them home, California's reporting time pay would probably require that they get paid for half of their scheduled shift. So if I'm in that situation, I'm supposed to work eight hours from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. You send me home at 11 a.m. You'd have to pay me for the three hours I actually worked plus one extra hour of reporting time pay. That would get me to four hours of pay, which was half of what I was supposed to work. Now, there's some additional minimums and maximums. We're not going to get into those here. It would take us forever, but you can see them on our HR California website. So let's compare that to that same situation it's raining like mad but now the power goes out we're all just sitting there it's it's dark it's it's cold it's not fun so now there's an exception to the reporting time pay requirement that we just talked about if you do send me home and that's because there is what we call a failure of public utilities so in this case because the electricity that's gone out the power because it's a public utility california law says if you send me home due to a failure of a public utility you just have to pay me for the hours I've actually worked until you sent me home. There's no reporting time pay requirement. We get similar exceptions in the law if like the police or the fire department come knock on the door and tell you to evacuate. There's a bomb threat in the neighborhood or they tell you to evacuate because of flooding or there's an act of God, the law says, that shuts you down. Earthquake, fire, whatever, flood. Um, there's a list of these exceptions in California's wage orders. Those are those postings that you have to have along with all your other big posters hanging in the workplace. Um, and you can see all of those reporting time pay exceptions there. There's actually one, uh, Matt, one kind of secret exception that's not listed in the wage orders. Uh, Labor Commissioner has guidance out there that says that rain, simply rain, can excuse reporting time pay. Labor Commissioner says if rain makes it unsafe or impossible to work, you can send employees home without paying that reporting time pay. And yeah, it is a kind of an interesting secret one because it's not out there in the wage orders where we all see the exceptions to the reporting time pay. But if you know where to look in their enforcement manual, you can see they've made mention of this. And that enforcement manual is really good guidance for us and for everybody because that's what the deputy labor commissioners are using to evaluate claims that are brought before them. So it's good to know what the labor commissioners are using to evaluate the claims. It's also important, I think, from that secret exception as you raised it, that it's not all rain, right? They were clear that we're really looking at rain that is um, making it unsafe or impossible to work. Um, and so just because it's raining doesn't mean we have an exception to the reporting time pay if we feel like stopping work or sending them home. It needs to make it unsafe or impossible to work. So let's talk about then 
uh, where we are with our workforce, right? We know over the last few years, we've had a change in where work is performed. Um, a lot more work can be performed remotely. And so a question we're getting a lot is about remote workers. And first, are the rules even different with remote workers? And then also, you know, what do we do with these reporting time pay issues if the power goes out at their home? Um, so what do you think about those two issues, Ellen? Well, I don't think it's going to make a difference if I'm at home or I'm at the office. If the power goes out and it's unsafe for me to work or I can't work, um, that should excuse the reporting time pay. Uh, but what if the lights are on, but the internet goes down? You know, you get that little message on your cell phone that your internet is down and we're sorry it won't be up for six more hours or whatever. Um, the internet is not considered a public utility, so it is not subject to that reporting time pay exception. So if the internet goes down, um, you know, we would still have to pay reporting time pay if we told an employee, well, sorry, you're done for the day, you can't do any work. Um, what if though internet goes down, but you know, downtown Sacramento where y'all are working, uh, internet's still running. Could you tell me, well, Ellen, hop in your car and come into the office where the internet's up and running? You probably could. No reason I can't come downtown. But then we have the question of, do you have to pay me for the time to, you know, get out of my PJs and bunny slippers I work in and get dressed and drive into work? Um, we really don't know. Um, you know, we're three years into this grand what I'll call work from home experiment that COVID threw us all into. And we just don't have any guidance from the labor commissioner on these things. I don't know, Matt, you have any, any thoughts on that pay for the drive into work and all that? Yeah. And I, I think I agree with you that, you know, an employer can require an employee to do something that's lawful in the furtherance of their work. That's kind of the bargain here that the employer gets to direct the employee's work, but that control, as I talked about before is, is a big issue. Um, for me. And I think when we talk about commutes and travel time, when you have a 100% remote worker, they don't have a commute. And so if you're requiring them to say, hey, you know, you come in, or if you're making it available to that non-exempt employee to come in and allowing or authorizing that kind of work, because they don't have a commute, all of that's travel pay. And so, yeah, we don't have guidance from the labor commissioner on these things, but we do know they trend towards employee protections. Um, we do know that the general rule is you pay for all time actually worked or suffered to work or permitted to work as it's used in the wage order. And so if we're bringing those remote workers in downtown or into an office because we've got the utilities and they don't, we need to consider all those compensation things um, for that as well. So, you know, I'm in line with you, Ellen, on that. And that those are the kinds of things that, um, you know, I would tell our members um, all the same, too, is, you know, if you're allowing your non-exempt employees to work or you're directing them to work, we're just paying them for that time. Now, we have the non-exempt hourly workers, but we also have exempt salaried employees, and they are, of course, not immune to wage and hour issues during disasters. So in general, what should employers know about um, any exempt employee pay issues? So, you know, generally, we always start with that good old overarching rule that if an exempt employee does any work at all during the week, they get paid for the full week. But, you know, we all know there are some exceptions where we can deduct from the exempt employee's pay, always in full day increments, where the exempt employee chooses to take a day off or if they're sick and they're out of sick leave. So basically the way it goes, if the employer prevents me from working, I get paid for the day. Like, Matt, if you tell me, don't come to work tomorrow, Ellen, because we're repainting the office. 
But if I take a day off for my own personal reasons, I want to go to Disneyland or work in my garden, whatever I want to do, then you can deduct a day's pay. But with these emergency situations, there's some big questions that we don't necessarily have answers to. Like I got a call yesterday from an employer in the Santa Barbara area, horrible flooding, mudslides in Montecito craziness. And they desperately needed their managers at work, but literally the freeways and the roads were shut down due to the flooding. So this exempt employee literally could not get to work. They physically could not get there because everything was closed. And they didn't do the kind of work that could be done from home. So a question comes up, does the employer owe them for pay for the day if they literally, you know, can't get to work even in a boat? Um, it's not like they chose to take a vacation day, but also the employer didn't prevent them from working. There's just not really any clear guidance here under the regs. Um, thoughts? Yeah, um, and that is tricky uh, for this because, I, you know, what I like to do here is always fall back on what is the rule and then what is the exception because we know where the rule is is where we're starting from here. And the rule is, as you said, for exempt employees, if they performed work in the week, they get paid for the week. It doesn't matter the amount of hours they worked, the amount of days they worked. But then we do have these exceptions littered throughout uh, that talk about times where the employee absents themselves from it, um, or they're taking CFRA, FMLA leave. Um, and those are areas where we can take permissible deductions from exempt work. And I think this is tricky because, um, you know, the ground rule here is that they're getting paid. So we're the ones as the employer who needs to exercise the um, exception by deducting from their pay or deducting from their PTO bank as appropriate by policy. And so we just want to be cautious here. Um, we can separate things like workplace safety and safe travel to work from wage and hour issues. So is the person exempting them, you know, personally taking themselves out from work or um, are they ready, willing and able to work and they're just being prevented by some act of God, as we talked about in the reporting time pay? The rules are different here for the exempt employees. And so it's really kind of unclear in this particular situation whether you want to pay them or not. Where I always sit with this for um, for the listeners is, you know, the best practice would be to pay them for the time. And if you don't want to pay them for the time, it means you're exercising the exception and you want to consult with legal counsel. Because whenever you want to do something different from what the rule requires, you want to make sure you're on solid footing or else you're always opening yourself up to claims. Uh, with the labor commissioner or the courts. Um, moving off wage and hour issues, Alan, because I think we really hit that thoroughly with regards to the natural disasters is leaves of absence. And what's interesting about this particular topic and, and where we are in these circumstances is that there are some unique leaves of absences issues that we don't tend to talk about a lot, um, except in these circumstances. And the first one I want to start with is what's known as volunteer civil service leave uh, for emergency duties. So what does that leave entail, Ellen? Well, so certain employees have a legal right to take job-protected time off to perform certain emergency duties. There's uh, time off for volunteer firefighters, for reserve peace officers, emergency rescue personnel like fire, sheriff, or police department. These time off requirements are contained in several different laws under the California Labor Code. Um, you can learn about each of them on HR California, our website. Um, but basically, honestly, Matt, they all boil down to the same thing, which is basically, hey, let's let those emergency workers have time off their regular jobs so they can keep us all safe. And, and I think as long as we keep that in mind, it, it's kind of a no brainer. 
Yeah. And uh, what's interesting about this then, of course, is we know with those who are familiar with administering leaves of absences, you know, how much time do they get and these kinds of things. And um, this one's more of a common sense approach. We have an emergency. They are a reserve peace officer or a volunteer firefighter. They need to go perform that duty until the emergency is over. This one's been kind of longer um, than you would expect. This is, hasn't been an isolated storm or weather pattern that we've seen up and down the state. It's been sustained. Um, and so their emergency duty time may be lengthier. It's really until yes. they they no longer have to perform the emergency duty. But again, as you said, and I really like this, it's, you know, let those emergency workers do the job to help keep us all safe. Um, they're performing a civil service. Um, you know, having some grace with that particular leave of absence, I think is important for all of us. Uh, what employers might see more often though, because not many of our employees are volunteer firefighters or emergency rescue personnel, um, is um, something that's going on with schools. And I know here in the area, a couple schools uh, went down for at least a day or so. And there's a separate leave under the labor code, as you've talked about, um, called school emergency leave. And this might be a situation where, you know, the power goes out at the school or a daycare center has to close due to flooding or for some other reason, just the, the child can't go or needs to be picked up from these places on an emergency basis. So Ellen, what does school emergency leave provide for employees under the law? So basically, the school emergency leave law is part of what originally was the school activities leave law. So that one was meant for the school play or a field trip or something like that, where employees can take up to eight hours a month off for these school activities. Well, the legislature added in this school emergency leave to the same law, and it applies if you have 25 or more employees. And it basically says if a parent or some other folks, we'll talk about that in a minute, need to leave work uh, due to an emergency situation, like the child can't remain at school or child care due to a natural disaster, like a fire or an earthquake or a flood. Um, the parent is entitled to take up to 40 hours each year for this emergency situation. Um, and it doesn't always have to be a parent. It can be a parent, a guardian, a step-parent, a foster parent, a grandparent, or someone who stands in loco parentis to the child. And in loco parentis, it's just a fancy Latin legalese phrase. It means someone who acts in the place of a parent. Like if your aunt raised you, she would stand in loco parentis to you. So those folks can take up to 40 hours per year off for school emergency situations. And you know, normally of course, for school activity leave, like the field trip, you got to give your employer some notice that they're going to you're going to want time off for that field trip. But obviously, school emergencies don't leave much time for notice. You get a call from the school, school's flooded, you got to come pick up your kid, off you go. Absolutely. And that's really the notice, right? Um, if that happens, then it's just, you know, hey, Matt, um, school's flooded. I got to go. OK, thanks for the notice. Yep. Um, okay, then, you know, it goes without saying, Ellen, that any discussion about natural disasters needs to include, of course, workplace safety components. Interestingly enough, we've gotten a new law that went into effect January 1st of this year that addresses emergency conditions um, that you and I will discuss momentarily. But I think it's a really good place to start with just general workplace safety or OSHA principles. Um, about workplace safety. And those really revolve around the idea that employers have a general duty to ensure the health and safety of the workforce. Uh, and we need to ensure that the conditions allow for that, of course. Also, employees have this right to refuse to work in conditions that could create 
the risk of harm without repercussions, meaning, um, you know, if an employee decides that they want to refuse to work because they're afraid of imminent harm, they can not work and we can't punish them for that. So if you tell me to go stand like in a puddle of water and do some electrical, dangerous electrical work, I can say, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I think that's the case uh, because there's that okay, risk good. of imminent harm and I can't write you up for it. I can't fire you, demote you and these kinds of things. Okay. So that's the general OSHA principles. And I think that's a good primer for going into the new law that we had this year, um, SB 1044, that addresses emergency conditions. So Ellen, give us a rundown of what SB 1044 entails. Well, it basically is very similar to what we just talked about. And it says that during an emergency condition, an employer can't punish an employee if they leave work or they refuse to report to work if they have a reasonable belief that work is unsafe. And reasonable belief is really the key term here. Would a reasonable person believe that the work is unsafe uh, would a reasonable person under the same circumstances conclude that there was really a danger of death or serious injury? And that's always going to be fact-based. So, you know, honestly, doesn't sound too different from the general OSHA principle that you just talked about. No, and I think that's that's a really interesting part of it um, is that we have this new law and it kind of incorporates a lot of these general principles we talked about. But there are some different components to this, right, Ellen? Yeah, so under this new law, there's actually a definition of an emergency condition, and it defines it as a disaster or extreme peril that causes uh, peril to the safety of people or property at the workplace caused by natural forces, or, and this is interesting, by a criminal act, like maybe an active shooter situation. Um, it also includes a situation where there's an order to evacuate a workplace or the worker's home or a school of the worker's child, again, due to a natural disaster or due to a criminal act. So disaster or extreme peril to the safety of people or property is really going to be the key here. Um, so if I refuse to come to work tomorrow because I have a reasonable belief that work is unsafe, let's say I just saw on the news that the whole block that the Cal Chamber building is on is under six feet of water. Um, I have to give some advance notice to my employer when it's feasible before I fail to report to work. So I should call you ahead of time and say, hey, Matt, I'm not coming. I have a reasonable belief that it would be dangerous to come to work. Um, foreseeability, feasibility for advance notice, it's always tricky in emergencies. Um, might not always be feasible to notify you in advance. I get down the road, I get off the freeway, I'm heading to the chamber, and again, I see that it's under six feet of water. There's really not a lot of advance notice there, so I'm supposed to notify you as soon as I can that I've determined it's too dangerous to show up at work. So, you know, in these crazy storms, if you're on a construction site, and all of a sudden a flood, a wall of water is heading towards the construction site. And I tell my folks, you know, we're going to get out of here now, now, now. I don't have to pick up my cell phone first and call you and say, hey, Matt, is it okay if we leave before we drown? The law allows employees to use a little judgment there. That advance notice might be excused. Um, one other important thing in this new law, and we're getting, these are really where the calls are coming into the helpline, is the law says employers can't enforce rules against the, the use of personal cell phones 
If the device is used during an emergency condition to seek assistance or to assess safety or to communicate to verify safety. And really, does that mean that you can no longer have a rule that I can't keep my cell phone in my back pocket all the time? And that's not really what this law says. What it means is you can still have a general rule that I don't get to carry my cell phone around with me all day during work, but if one of these emergency situation arises, you're gonna have to let me access my cell phone for those safety reasons listed in the law, seeking assistance, assessing safety, or communicating to verify safety. And that seems pretty common sense. Yeah, absolutely, Ellen. And I think that's why it's a really important discussion to have about this new law because um, that's really the key. A lot of us have reasonable personal cell phone safety policies and you can keep them, just we have to remember now we've got a carve out and it's only based on those emergency conditions you described. So unless there's an emergency condition as you described, then continue to enforce your cell phone policy as you would. But once we get to that condition, then let them use it. And Ellen, I, I think we wanna leave with one final quick note about emergencies. And you know we've talked a lot about employees not being able to work or not being able to get to work. In these situations, is there any kind of unemployment benefits or things that uh, change during emergency conditions? So just two things of note, um, during a declared emergency, declared by the governor, the one-week waiting period for UI benefits is waived. So if I'm not able to work for a certain period of time due to this natural disaster, um, I can collect unemployment insurance right away without that normal one-week waiting period. The other thing that affects employers is when there is a disaster, there are circumstances where uh, employers have a longer time to file certain things with EDD, payroll taxes and other reports uh, when there's actually a disaster. Uh, if you jump onto EDD's main website and scroll down to the bottom of the page, there's a link to disaster assistance on the bottom left of that page. Um, and that talks about all of these exceptions and where you can get more information, list of all of the natural or the disasters that have been declared, things like that. So it's a good resource. Well, Ellen, thank you for taking the time to be with me today. This was really a great practical discussion about disasters, this one and others into the future that I think we can all take lessons from and use as reminders on kind of how to handle these various uh, employment and workplace issues that arise during the disasters. Well, thanks, Matt, for having me. And, you know, it's raining here, so can I be done with work today? <laughs> uh, not unless you're unsafe, Ellen, and uh, you look Got nice it. and safe there uh, in your home office. So. Uh, thank you again for taking the time with me today. And thank you listeners for joining this discussion on the workplace. Please comment, share, and subscribe to Cow Chambers podcast by visiting cowchamber.com.